Good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> My name's Rick, and uh, I work here at Grace Church. And as Katie says, this morning we are continuing our series in the book of Exodus. And good news, straight from the bat, the Exodus has happened. Hey! Uh, by the mighty hand of God, the Israelites have been drawn out of the slavery, out of the country of Egypt, and now God is in the process of drawing them into their own country that he has promised them. But, spoiler alert, I don't know if you know, but the book of Exodus doesn't actually get the Israelites into the promised land. I think there's a clue in the title, otherwise it would be called the Exodus and the Entradus. <laughs> you can keep that. No, no, the drama of the book of Exodus is found in two places. In Egypt, as we've seen, and in Sinai, which is a mountain on the Arabian Peninsula. What we're going to look at today, though, is what happens between those two things. It's some of the events that occur on the 400-mile journey between Egypt and Sinai. And if Egypt is a bit like Frodo, bear with me on this, <laughs> A bit like Frodo, when he leaves the Shire, on better terms than the Israelites did, I understand that, in the Fellowship of the Ring. And then if Sinai is a bit like when he gets to Mount Doom, in, see what I did there, um, in The Return of the King, then this, in the middle, is the Two Towers. And if you don't know Tolkien, this has gone right over your head, but I think you'll get the point, so it's fine. Um, and a lot of people deride the two towers, because it's, there's no sort of crucial narrative. You know, it's just sort of people getting from A to B. But I love it. I think it's really fascinating, because what you get is a, is a character study. You know, you get a deeper understanding of the players in the tale, so that when you get to the big moments at the mountain where gold is melted down, we understand the characters that much more. So it is with our passage today, and actually so it is with our life. Our lives are not made up of daily dramatic events, are they? Today's passage is about the margin times, the daily slog, the many moments in our lives that come between the high points. John Lennon once said in a song written for his son, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. Which is a clever lyric, one of my favorites, but utter rubbish. <laughs> Sorry, John. Because God has prepared every single one of our steps, hasn't he? And at every turn is drawing us into life with him. Hallelujah. So let's read. Um, we, if you have a Bible, can I encourage you to open it in front of you? Because today we're going to be reading chapter 15, chapter 16, and chapter 17 of Exodus. But as that's quite a lot, I'll be reading sort of six or seven from each uh, chapter and be skipping over some other bits. So it'd be good to have it in front of you. Um, so Exodus 15, if you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen. Verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. There they, uh, they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they couldn't drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And if you have um, a Bible like mine, there's a note at the bottom that says Marah means bitterness. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. 
There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. I'm going to move straight on to uh, chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. And I'm going to go with Sin because it's like in the region of Sinai, because the wilderness of Sin is something entirely different. But the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Come on. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, they will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he's heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And then I'm going to skip down to chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages. It's a journey piece. According to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So God, no, rather, so Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with his people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, which mean testing and quarreling because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? There's a really interesting dynamic that's going on with us as a church at the moment, Um, and I wonder if you've noticed it. I I didn't at first. In verse 1 of chapter 16, it says that this happens on the 15th day of the second month. And I'm encouraged by your blank looks. This is how I you know, read the Bible a lot. I don't know what that date means. Well, actually, I had the privilege four weeks ago of speaking about the Passover and the subsequent exit from Egypt. And the Passover happens on the 14th day of the first month. 
So the Exodus happens on the 15th. So it's exactly four weeks before the events of this. And I preached on that exactly four weeks ago. It's fun, isn't it? Three weeks ago, I preached about the Red Sea. And that's probably in a similar time scale to these guys, how long it took them to get to the Red Sea. So we are matching the journey of the Israelites almost day for day, which is kind of cool. So, pop quiz. <laughs> Who can remember what I preached on either of those occasions? <laughs> Don't worry, this is very much a rhetorical question. I'm not checking to see who stays awake um, during my talks. Um, the truth is, we forget, don't we? And quickly. I can't even remember most of what I said three weeks ago. I'm not expecting you to. I've been asleep since then. But that is what's happening with these guys. Four weeks ago, we saw the culmination of 10 supernatural displays of God's power and desire to set his people free. Three weeks ago, we saw God complete the exodus by stopping the flow of a massive body of water uh, to allow his people to traverse the sea on dry ground. Amazing stuff. But they seem to have forgotten about all of that. They think God's abandoned them, left them behind to suffer in the wilderness. But God hasn't abandoned them. In fact, he's not stopped leading them. He has led them into the wilderness for a specific purpose. I mean, is it, you've got to think about this. It's even God's plan that Egypt and Sinai are 400 miles away. If he wanted to, he could have made them closer together. But he doesn't. This is the plan. Because before he draws them into a land, he draws them into himself. So he's taken them into the wilderness to test them. The wilderness is a testing place. You might have that translated desert in your Bible, which means there's little food, even less water. It's a place of need. And there God is able to test their hearts. It's in each of the stories. Uh, Exodus 15, 25 says... The Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you listen to the voice of the Lord, I won't put diseases on you. 16.4 says, behold, I'm going to rain bread from heaven. You should go out and gather it, and I'm going to test you whether you'll walk in my law or not. In these tests, God is saying, do you trust me? And at every hurdle, the behavior of the Israelites answers with a resounding no. Thankfully, these aren't admission tests. They're progress tests. I used to work in a, a primary school. I was a teaching assistant and dinner lady. I mean, dinner man, but no one knows what dinner lady, you know. The beard confused them somewhat. Miss, miss! No. <laughs> Take another look. And we would give the kids weekly math tests. And that wasn't to determine whether they could stay in our class. They were our class. You're our kids. We're committed to you. But rather, we give them a test every week to see how they're getting on. You know, Donna's struggling with her 10 times table. Jordan still can't add up. And so we would aid them. God is doing the same thing. He says, do you trust me yet? Will you listen to what I ask you to do? No? Then let me help you out. Let me reveal something of myself to you. Let me teach you that if you do as I say, you will prosper. God's grace, however, is met with increasing rebellion. 
At the Red Sea, the Israelites say they'd rather have been slaves in Egypt than die in the wilderness. Now they say they'd rather have died in Egypt. They're getting worse. I mean, chapter 17 continues this escalation of faithlessness. There is another taste. Uh, there's another test. But outrageously, it's the Israelites who test God. Despite God's gracious salvation, provision, revelation, they still don't trust him. And we can relate to this story. Our lives, too, are a journey. But it doesn't always feel like you're making progress. You know, just as in the narrative, the need for water never goes away, there are some needs in our lives that just don't change. And our culture tells us that at every moment you should be making progress, you should be getting better. So you can feel like a failure when you're still in the same job, same house, got the same money problems, got the same behavioral and habitual problems. Life can also feel like you're in a wilderness. Not dying of thirst or hunger, sure, but dying of boredom, loneliness, pressure to perform, the imposter syndrome. Social media tells you that everyone else is living in a land flowing with milk and honey. And you're stuck in a wilderness that nobody knows or cares about. Well, those are each examples of testing in our lives. And when testing comes, it can be tempting to respond like these Israelites, by grumbling against God and blaming our leaders. But in testing, as in all things, Jesus is our example, not the Israelites. Because in identification with this story, Jesus too went into the wilderness. And in every test, he illustrated exactly what our response should be. Where the Israelites forgot God's goodness, Jesus remembered the Red Sea and revered the Lord. Where the Israelites fretted for food, Christ instead abandoned bread to obey his Father where the Israelites goaded God to prove his power, Jesus proclaimed, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. If you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, you are in Christ, which means that by his spirit that lives within you, you can face every test just like Jesus did. At the cross, Jesus set you free from the rebellion of the Israelites. You don't have to go on grumbling. He has substituted grumbling with his power to endure every wilderness challenge. And these tests are the means by which you receive Jesus. It's hard to think about that in the moment, but it's true. Testing will never determine, ever, whether God loves you. He loves you. The end. But as our loving Father puts tests in our way, so we grow in the likeness of Jesus. Faith in God isn't something you can muster up. Trusting Jesus isn't a skill. 
Rather, as we face seemingly insurmountable difficulties in our lives, our dependence on God will deepen. And as we see him graciously supply our need, we'll also grow in endurance, character, and hope. I see this mostly in my life in the area of finance. You know, every time we have a budget squeeze or a bit of a crisis, I go, God, haven't I learned this lesson yet? Well, apparently not, because I'm still fretting about where the money's going to come from. Um, my wife, Cheryl, didn't know I was going to be preaching on this. And last night we were praying, and we, we've been decorating our, our bedroom and moving some stuff around, and she found a piece of paper. Um, Cheryl was in the habit of recording you know, when God had come through for us. And we'd just moved house, and you know what that's like. You've got to pay for movers and stamp duty and all that gubbins, and you're low on cash. And we suddenly had to pay £55 for a tyre. And we had to do it. There was no other way. But God provided for us £56 soon after. And you kept note of this. He comes through for us. And as these things continue to happen, I'm learning to trust him. You know, I'm learning to say, oh, money problems again. Here we are again, Lord. I look forward to seeing how you'll resolve it this time. Tests reveal us. But hey, they also reveal God. In the first story, God announces it. He said, I am the Lord, your healer. Which actually seems slightly odd in a story about being thirsty and him providing water. No, they're not sick. What do they need healing of? Well, the key is found in God pointing back to the diseases, the afflictions of the Egyptians. The throwing of the log into the bitter water of Mara is a reversal of the story of the first plague. At that point, as God enacted his judgment on Egypt, Moses took uh, not a log, but his staff, and the sweet water of the Nile was turned to blood, making it unfit for drinking. In this story, the bitter water of Mara is purified by God the healer. Sin and rebellion of Egypt produces bitterness. The grace of God brings healing. Everyone who puts their trust in Jesus will be spiritually healed. He will purify every sin. Where once we were stained like the Nile, full of bitterness like Mara, now our lives are made pure and sweet by knowing Jesus and the forgiveness and life he offers. The second story reveals God to be the Lord who provides. Now, Exodus is full of um, miraculous events. You know, the parting of the Red Sea, the ten plagues, the pillar of cloud and fire. And each of these have been poked and prodded by scientists and, and scholars alike, trying to, you know, explain their natural basis, which is fine. God's not afraid of that. He can stand up to that. In fact, the fact that God used his own creation to bring about his plans and purposes doesn't stop them being miraculous. And there's also, I don't know if you think like this, but there's also not a sliding scale of how miraculous something is. You know, resurrection, 10 out of 10. Passing headache, let's say 2 out of 10. Be generous. No, God's at work in all of it. 
Deciding what's natural and what's supernatural is actually kind of a false separation that doesn't hold any biblical water. He upholds the universe, the book of Hebrews says, by the word of his power. If he said stop, it'd stop. I am breathing. That is scientifically demonstrable. I don't understand it. Ask my wife. She was better at biology. But only because he sustains the oxygen I need. Having said all of that, though, there are some natural explanations that I find harder to swallow than others. And the um, bread from heaven is one of those. I skipped over it earlier, but let's look closely at uh, chapter 16. We're told in verse 13 that to tide over these hungry, hungry Hebrews... Do you like that? You're good. Um, I thought that one myself. Someone's just got it. (laughs) God sends a bevy of quail for them to eat that evening. And in the morning, the promised bread from heaven has covered the ground. We're told in verse 14 that it's a fine, flake-like thing. The Israelites have never seen anything like it. In fact, they call it manna, because manna means, what is it? Which I think means we should pronounce it manna? Manna? Manna. It's also very sweet. You know, verse 31 says it tastes like honey. And given that, you know, purification of sugar, you know, refining that is hundreds of years away, this is the most delicious thing they could possibly hope to eat. This is so much more than the daily sustenance they need. What a good God. And the most popular uh, natural explanation uh, for this miracle is that in the vicinity there were trees, okay, that had sweet sap, like maple or something like that. Also in the vicinity were bugs who would go and eat this, this sap. And then <laughs> uh, they, would, they would come to the wilderness in the night and they, they would exude. Let's not push that button too much. They would exude some of the sap they'd eaten and leave it in a flake-like form on the ground. Yeah, I kind of get that. I guess you know, maybe like a spider or something. Anyway. There's a couple of problems with this. God says, every day, go out and gather two liters. That'll be enough for you. But on day six, get twice as much. Because on day seven, you can have a rest. And we're told that every night, if you try to keep some for the next day, it's a little bit for me, you know, I'm not sure that it's going to come back tomorrow, I don't quite trust God, but if you keep it for yourself, it's going to go moldy. It says the worms get into it and it stinks. But on day six, these worms have a day off. (laughs) They're so hungry, days one to five. They're like, oh, should we go out? Do you know what? I had loads last night. I'm fine. I'll leave it. (laughs) And also, our sap-exuding bugs also have a day off. On day seven, because some of the Israelites, they don't trust God, so they go out and try and gather some more. It's not there. These are smart bugs. They know what day of the week it is. Taking my tongue firmly out of my cheek. (laughs) It doesn't really matter. Because whatever way the manna got there, 
God was providing for his people. And in two ways. Two ways. Food, obviously. But also he's providing for them a Sabbath. It's actually the first time this word appears in the Bible. On the seventh day of each week, God is instituting a day of rest. He says, stay in your tent. This is the promised test. You're going to listen to me, says God, because it's good for you. I'm going to give you everything you need every day. But on Friday, gather twice as much so you can have a day off on Saturday. Take a day off. What a brutal God. What a horrible test. (laughs) The Sabbath was made for man. Jesus says so in the Gospels. And while keeping the Sabbath is soon to be one of God's Ten Commandments, just how to be perfect, how to be holy, he's done it for our benefit. And as well as looking forward to the coming law, this reminds us too of God's creative power back in Genesis. That before God himself rested on the seventh day, modeling to us what we should do, God created all things. All things are a gift from him. Just as we can't really divide what's natural and what's supernatural, we also can't draw lines between what's, you know, everyday food and manna from heaven. I have a job. I have an income. This is a gift from God. I've also on occasions received 56 pounds through the door in unmarked envelopes. This is also a gift from God. I earn more money than some of you. He's not boasting because I earn less than the rest of you. Verse 17 says this. The people of Israel gathered, some more, some less. And when they measured it with their two-liter measure, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. He gives us what we need. After Jesus, in the age of the church, Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And in his second letter, he quotes this. Encouraging the church to continue growing and giving money to the church. You've got enough. You've got enough to give back as well, he says. Give to your means, of course. Don't give too much. Don't give too little either. I think when we divide our thinking into, you know, what's natural, what's supernatural, try and divide up where our providence, our finances come from, we can hold on to things too tightly. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a gift from God, but, but, but I earned that. That, that. that was inheritance from my grandma. We can't touch that. No. Everything we have is manna from heaven. Every penny in your pocket is a gift from God. And he doesn't need your money. He really doesn't. He could make more. This also isn't me with my begging cap asking for more money for the church. No, this is, this story asks, are you going to hold on to it? This gift that he's given to you? Are you going to let the worms get into it? The moths, as Jesus says? It will stink. It will be no good for you. 
just as God giving us a day of rest is for our benefit, even though it's a commandment, in the same way giving back to God and trusting him with tomorrow's daily bread and tomorrow's and tomorrow's is the best thing for us. As Katie said earlier, if you have questions about what it is to give money to the local church, please come and ask someone you've seen here. Please don't you know, give away all your inheritance. It's not what's on show here. God is our healer and our provider. And lastly, come to a close, God is with us. That's the test in chapter 17, isn't it? They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? I mean, what are they playing at? God has brought them out of slavery, through the Red Sea, provided them fresh water, delicious food to eat, and they asked, do you think he's even here? Well, God is among them. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. But God was Emmanuel in that moment more than they could know. We find out in in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians (laughs) that the rock that Moses struck was Christ. By his spirit, Jesus was there. Christ, who would be the God-man, the ultimate expression of Emmanuel, God with us. By his spirit in the rock, he was already pouring out life. And we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus runs all through this story. And if you have a Bible, can I encourage you, turn to the Gospel of John where the wilderness narrative is is echoed majestically. Because in John 4 and 5, we see Jesus healing the sick, the fulfillment of the promise of the waters of Mara. I am the Lord, your healer, and he can still heal today. In John 6, moving on, after the account of Jesus feeding 5,000 people with just two fish and five loaves, Jesus, in the face of the same grumbling that he endured 1,500 years before, declared, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And he invites people to come and eat of him. Not literally, obviously. But Jesus is identifying himself as a thing that we need every day. He is our daily bread. Our passage today shows us that God will provide materially for his people. Of course he will. But the story finds its fulfillment in Jesus, in whom we receive everything. Everything we need. Love, mercy, friendship, wisdom, hope, the list goes on. This is a story about the slog of real life. Jesus knows it's Monday tomorrow. He also knows it's Tuesday, the day after that. And next week may be just as unremarkable as the last. Do you feel like you're just going from A to B? Do you feel like life is happening to you while you're busy making other plans? Come and eat of the bread that never goes stale, that is fresh every day, 
that is new every morning. You feel like you're spiritually starved? Are you bored? You feel like you're in that desperation Ben prayed about earlier? Jesus invites you to feed on him every day. Ben was right when he prayed, we come as sons and daughters, you don't have to beg, he's giving it to us. And he will fill you, you will be sated, you will have all your needs fulfilled. And finally, John 7, verse 37 to 39, at the very festival where the Jews commemorated their wilderness years, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. By his spirit, Jesus is here right now. Are you thirsty? Is your life dry? Are you asking, as the Israelites did, is God with me? Christ, the rock, has been struck for you. On the cross, he was stricken. And just as the water poured from the rock, Jesus on the cross poured out his blood, his life, and his spirit for you. Come and drink.